All right. Well, here we are. The last time I spoke to a group of people from this vantage point was 23 years ago at my own baptism. Little did I think that I would be back up here at that time, but I am thankful to be here with you. I'm thankful for all of the learning and growing that I've been able to do in this room over the past 23 years. I'm thankful to be able to be here and able to worship the Lord um, week after week, and then to be here with you all this morning as we're unified around the study of God's Word, and specifically in the book of Acts. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. The last two weeks we've had some really great introductions to this book, how to study it, and then a really great overview last week from Paul Twist. Um, So I know that we're going to be blessed this semester and into next semester, too, as we look at this amazing book of Scripture. So in Acts chapter 1, we have recorded for us the very last conversations that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to heaven. And so could we say that these are Jesus' last words? Well, maybe not exactly. I was playing a sort of creative writing game with my family where you get uh, votes from your fellow players for answers that are the most witty or ironic. And one of the questions that came up was, what were Jesus' actual last words? And none of us really liked that question very much. It kind of seemed to trivialize uh, the Bible and something that we believe to be actually true. Uh, But my daughter had a good answer, and it was the answer everyone voted for. She said, he's still alive. You can't have last words when you're still alive. So I thought that was smart of her. But I do think there is some value to studying these final words, the final instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples before returning to heaven. So we're going to look at those today. And here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the power that is going to come when he sends his Holy Spirit. He was leaving them, and he would be sending the Spirit who would usher in the age that we live in now, the church age. So we're going to see today how Jesus prepared his disciples for this coming power, and we're going to also see how the disciples responded to that preparation as they trusted him and followed him faithfully through this transitional time in history. So we're going to begin by looking at what Jesus provided in order to prepare the disciples. And that will be um, that he first provided confident assurance. Confident assurance. And we see that in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So let's read that together. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So we learned last week that Luke was writing this account, uh, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke, but we haven't talked that much about this Theophilus to whom the letter is uh, dedicated, to whom this book is dedicated, because that's really what it is. It's more of a dedication of the book rather than an address to a letter. Luke is writing this book of Acts for a wide audience, but he directs it to this man, Theophilus. We really don't know who he was. 
A lot of commentators surmise that he was a Roman official who had converted to Christ because in Luke, Luke addresses him as excellent Theophilus, sort of a title of honor within the government. But as I said, whoever he was, this introduction really serves as more of a dedication of this book rather than a specific uh, letter to this guy, Theophilus. We know that Luke was a historian, that he was a theologian, and he's setting out in Luke and Acts to record an accurate report of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's important to remember, as we study Acts, we're entering a transitional time in the life of the church, in the life of those who believe in God and in Jesus Christ. And this transitional time necessitated some really unique situations, some really unique miracles and signs and wonders. Um, And the disciples, as we find them here in chapter 1, need to be prepared for what is coming. So beginning in verse 3, we see that the first thing that Jesus provided for them was the assurance that he had indeed risen from the dead. This is the powerful assurance that he gives them. He had accomplished the work of redemption for his people on the cross, and here he was showing himself now to be alive and still completely in control. He gave them this assurance partially by appearing to them for 40 days after coming back to life. He showed himself alive to these men and to many others. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and then to me as one untimely born, because we remember that Jesus appeared to Paul in resurrected form on the road to Damascus. So the disciples, along with 500 other believers, had seen Jesus. They'd, most of them had seen his life to some extent. They'd seen his suffering. They'd seen him buried. And now they were seeing him risen again. And they needed to see this because it was exactly what they were to go and testify about. They were to go and bear witness that they had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. It would have been unthinkable for them to go, to be asked to go and preach the good news of his resurrection if they didn't really have confidence that it had happened. So he appeared to them, he talked with them, he walked with them, he ate food with them. They saw him in different places and with different groups of people, and they knew without a doubt that this was Jesus, the same one that they had known before the crucifixion, and that he was alive, that he was powerful, that he was able to keep all of his promises. Do you have this same assurance? You haven't seen the risen Lord face to face. But the testimony of these eyewitnesses that we have in Scripture still lives today. This historical account that Luke has recorded here in Acts and also in his gospel, it stands the test of time, doesn't it? And it agrees with the writers of the other gospels, with Matthew and Mark and John, who were actual eyewitnesses of all of Jesus' life and ministry, his death and his resurrection. Luke didn't invent these stories. He's not making them up. He's just simply recording what eyewitnesses told him had happened. So we have these historical facts. We have these accounts in the scriptures, but we also have our own stories, don't we? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have seen a transformation take place in your own heart that only the resurrected Christ could have accomplished. And maybe you've seen it in the lives and the testimonies of others 
Just think of the story that Frank just told of this man, this wonderful man who God has made a new creation in Christ. Only the power of a risen Savior can accomplish that. Because he lives, now we live. We have new life in the Savior. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas and to the disciples when Thomas was doubtful about whether Jesus had risen or not, and he wanted to touch Jesus' scars and see for himself. Jesus said to him in John 20, 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And that's us. We are those. We have not seen it with our own eyes, but we believe because of the testimony of these men that have written down the scriptures for us because of the Holy Spirit's work in our own hearts. And you can bear witness of this to others, just like the disciples. You have the scriptures to share. You have your own testimony to share of the work that God has done in redeeming you. So Jesus gave his disciples this confident assurance, and he gives us that same assurance today as we learn of him in the Bible and as we witness his power to bring spiritually dead people back to life. But not only did Jesus provide them with this confident assurance, he also gave them instruction and one very specific instruction. And keep in mind that just as we have this confident assurance that the disciples had, we also have the instruction of Jesus in the scriptures. Jesus instructs us through his word, if only we will open it and read it and actually listen and apply it to our lives. So let's look together at verses three through five. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So verse 3 tells us that Jesus was speaking to the disciples of things concerning the kingdom during these 40 days between the resurrection and ascension. He was equipping the disciples by teaching them about the kingdom of God, which can be defined as the rule or reign of God over all things. The disciples had been hoping, hadn't they, that Christ had come to be their king, to be the king of Israel, to deliver them from the Romans. But then he died on the cross, and they all scattered, and they weren't so sure anymore what he had come for. But now here he was. He had proven himself powerful. He had proven himself to be the king by conquering death, and he, their hope was starting to rekindle. It was being reborn. And then what did Jesus do? He went right on teaching them about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God. And this is another confirmation, by the way, to give them assurance that this was the same Jesus that they had known before, Because from the beginning of his ministry, they had heard him teaching about the kingdom of God. So we're going to consider the kingdom that he taught them about a little bit more later in Acts chapter 1, where the disciples ask him a clarifying question about the kingdom. Is it coming right now, they asked. But first, in verse 4, Luke tells us that Jesus also gave them one very specific instruction, and that was to stay put, to just stay in Jerusalem and wait for what he was going to send. The Spirit was going to come, and it was going to enable these men to continue the work that Jesus had begun. Jesus' redemptive work was done. His death on the cross, he said, it is finished. 
He rose from the dead, conquering death for all time for all who would believe in him. But his ministry on earth was going to continue. This wasn't the ending. His ministry was going to continue and really catch fire through the power of the Holy Spirit as it filled his followers. In Acts 1 verse 5, Jesus refers there to John's water baptism. And he contrasts that baptism with the baptism that was going to come, the baptism of the Spirit. John's baptism with water was a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, John said in Luke 3.16, One is coming who is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we see that, don't we? If you've read ahead a little bit in Luke 2, the tongues as of fire on the heads of the apostles. So John was preparing the Jews for what was to come, pointing them forward to the spiritual baptism of which the prophets had spoken. The prophecy in Joel 2, for example, which Peter quotes at length in Acts 2. So turn over there just for a second. It should just be one page over. Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17, it says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. So Jesus is telling them, That the time has come for this widespread outpouring of his Holy Spirit that the prophets had predicted. But he tells them to wait. Why couldn't they just rush out and start doing the work that he had commanded them to do, to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations? Well, in the next section, Jesus tells them that it's because they were still lacking something. They still needed the Holy Spirit to come and give them the power to do the work that he had commanded them to go and do. This wasn't something that they could do on their own strength, and so they had to wait. And Jesus gave them, in verses 6 through 8, a powerful promise. Once they had been assured of his resurrection and instructed about what they were supposed to do next, Jesus gave the disciples this powerful promise, and it's the same promise that he gives to all who put their faith in him, the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So let's read verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So during this last conversation that the disciples had with Jesus, they wanted to know if now was the time that the kingdom he had taught them so much about was finally coming. We already know that he spent much of his time with them during those 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. So let's consider a little bit back from Luke's gospel, what that teaching might have included. So turn over to Luke chapter 4 with me. Back a couple of books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Luke four forty-three. But he said to them, I'll read verse 42 for some context. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So from Jesus' own lips, he tells the purpose that he was sent, and it was to preach the kingdom of God. 
So I have a few other passages from Luke, and maybe you can just write down these references to look up later. Um, but Jesus, Luke records for us some specific discourses of Jesus that summarize some of the teaching that he gave on the kingdom. One of them is Luke 12, verses 22 to 23, where Jesus instructs his disciples, a very familiar passage, not to worry about their physical lives, but to seek first his kingdom and to be careful to store up their treasures in heaven where they can't be corrupted. He cautions them to stay prepared and ready with lamps lit awaiting the coming of the Son of Man so that they wouldn't be caught off guard. And then in chapter 13, verses 18 through 20, Jesus uses a couple of similes to teach what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a tiny little mustard seed, small and unimpressive, but growing into a mighty tree. It's like yeast in a loaf of bread. It's hidden, but it's powerful, and it causes that bread to rise. And then in verses 22 and following, he teaches about how the way into the kingdom is narrow and there are few people who find it and that there are many people who think they deserve to be in it but are really left outside. And then in Luke 17, there's a long passage there where Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God, when he's teaching, is invisible. It's in our hearts, right? It's around us. He tells them that it's present with them right now. Uh, in, in that way, he's indicating that he is the king. The kingdom has come. He's with them right now. So there's that aspect of the kingdom that it's already come. And for us as believers today, we know that, right? That the kingdom is within our hearts, that we are a kingdom of priests um, called into this world to go and spread the good news of the gospel. But then he also teaches in that passage in Luke 17 that he would come again and that he would bring judgment on all who were outside of his kingdom. And then in Luke 18, another familiar passage where Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. Remember him? He loved his worldly goods so much that he wasn't willing to turn away from them to follow Jesus. And then that's the point where Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And then the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. So entrance into the heaven is provided through God only. So the promise of the reward of the kingdom, um, he talks to the disciples that while they've left everything behind to follow him, that their reward would be so many times greater, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. So there's that aspect of the kingdom that it's now, it's here, it's with us because we have Jesus, but there's also that future kingdom. Uh, You looked up in your lesson some verses about the promises to David and that he would have a land and a kingdom that would be everlasting. And we know from scripture that those promises to Israel still stand. It's still true. So was it foolish for the disciples to be wondering if the kingdom was coming? Not at all. They knew that that's what Jesus' life was all about, that he came to preach the kingdom and to bring the kingdom in. So look back again at Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they come together, they're asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking, wow, this has got to be it. This is the time, right, Lord? It's here. We're ready for it. But what they didn't understand is that all the prophecies they had studied and read and knew never indicated that there would be this gap of time. The way our pastor puts it is they didn't know there would be 2,000 plus years of church before the kingdom would be established on earth. The Messiah had come. He died. He had risen again. And here they were just waiting for the kingdom to come any second now. And they also knew that before the kingdom would come, the Holy Spirit would be poured out from that prophecy in Joel. And they were ready for it. 
But Jesus told them, in answer to their question, that the timing of this event of the coming kingdom was not for them to know. Notice in response to their question, he doesn't, what he doesn't do, he doesn't tell them that they're foolish for looking for this kingdom. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, oh, why do you still think there's going to be a kingdom on earth? He doesn't say that because there will be a kingdom established on earth. But he just tells them that the time for that kingdom has been fixed by the Father. In Mark 13, 32, we read that it wasn't even for Jesus to know the time of the coming kingdom. But he tells the disciples that a time would come when the kingdom would be restored, but it's just not for them to know. But while the disciples couldn't know the time of these things, they could know that they were going to be a part in building the kingdom and that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them to empower them to go into all the world and be witnesses. We all know that from the beginning of Scripture, it was never God's plan for the kingdom to be isolated to the land of Israel. The Israelites were God's chosen people, but it was always God's plan to take the gospel message all around the world so that we would be a kingdom of many nations and many tribes and many tongues. Uh, Luke 3, uh, there's a sermon there where Peter says that the Jews put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, and then he says, a fact to which we are witnesses. And in that verse, we have the clue of what were the disciples supposed to go and be witnesses of? Well, it was the death and the resurrection of Christ. They were to be witnesses of that in Jerusalem, starting there, and in Judea, and into the other utter parts of the earth. So in the book of Luke, Paul Twist pointed out last week that for the majority of the chapters that Luke records from Jesus' life, Jesus was heading towards Jerusalem, right? His face was set on getting to the cross and accomplishing the work for which he'd come. Well, here in Acts, we have the opposite thing happening. Now the disciples have their faces set away from Jerusalem to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And look at the verb tense in this verse. You will be my witnesses. It doesn't say, go and be my witnesses. In this verse, it's not a command. John MacArthur says that it's both a prophecy and a promise. Um, I'll quote something from his commentary. He says, There's a sense in which believers do not even choose whether or not to be witnesses. They are witnesses. And the only question is how effective their witness is. So that's something we all need to consider. I am a witness of Christ. How is my witness? How am I doing? So with this powerful promise that he would send his Holy Spirit to help them to be witnesses for him to the ends of the earth, Jesus also gave the disciples a hopeful anticipation of what was to come. A hopeful anticipation in verses 9 to 11. So let's read those together. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So as Jesus went up into the clouds, taken up into glory, the disciples stood there looking up where they had last seen their Savior, and I think I probably would have done the same thing. But two angels appear and call them men of Galilee. Did you know that all of the disciples, with the exception of Judas, were from the region of Galilee? 
Looking ahead in Acts 2, we're going to see when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they begin to speak in other languages, the people question and they say, aren't these guys all from Galilee? And there's a tone of sarcasm and mocking in their voice because the region of Galilee was not considered to be very respectable. It was sort of a hick town, I guess you could say. And the, even the accent that they spoke Hebrew with was sort of um, uh, rough or coarse. People didn't aspire to have that accent. Um, so the Judean Jews who heard them speaking were just shocked that people from Galilee could have such ability to speak in other languages. It's so amazing, isn't it, that God takes this group of 11 small-town Jews to use as his vessels to take the message of the kingdom all around the world. It's just incredible. And it should inspire us at what the power of the Holy Spirit can do through average, ordinary people. And this is the same Holy Spirit that we have dwelling in us today. So the angels ask them, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into heaven? Jesus is going to come again out of the clouds, just as you've seen him taken up into heaven. So they just saw him taken up, and they were told that this same person in the same way is going to come back again. It's important for us to remember this, that Christianity has its basis in this person, this person, Jesus Christ, who was born in a manger, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross and rose again and ascended into heaven to reign with God. We don't have Christianity without that whole story of Jesus, this real person who lived for us and died for us. And we confess this and we proclaim it still today that he was born, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he's coming back someday. It's not for us to know the timing any more than it was for the disciples to know, but we can know for certain that he is coming back because he always keeps his promises. He has the power to keep his promises. And we have the scriptures We have our marching orders, so we know what we're supposed to be doing while we're waiting, just like the disciples did. We're to take this message of hope to the world. We're to live our daily lives. Even the mundane things that we do, we're to do them for God's glory. And I think that upon returning, Jesus is going to say, how's it going? How, How has it been living out your assignment? And I pray that he'll find each of you obeying his word, obeying his command to make disciples, to represent him in your families with your parents and your husbands and your children, uh, to go out and do everything that you do for his glory. So we've seen here what Jesus provided for the disciples. He gave them confident assurance that he'd risen from the dead. He gave them specific instructions about the kingdom and about what they were to do next. He gave them a powerful promise that he would be with them to equip them for the work of the gospel through his Holy Spirit. And he gave them a hopeful anticipation that while he wasn't there to establish his kingdom right then, he was going to come back someday. So look with me um, next about what the disciples did. How did they respond to all of these things? Uh, We'll start by looking at verses 12 to 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, we know that Jesus rose from the dead on the Sunday of Passover— And that 
Pentecost is always 50 days after the Passover. So since Jesus made his appearance to the disciples for 40 days, we can deduce that there were a, was a 10-day gap between his ascension and the time that he sent the Holy Spirit. So at that point, there would have been 10 days until the Pentecost. So 10 days of waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. So what did the disciples do? Well, first they obeyed Jesus by going back to wait as they were told. And it tells us that they went to the upper room where they were staying. And most commentators think that it's likely that this is the same upper room where they shared the last supper with Jesus, but we don't really know. It must have been a pretty large upper room, though, since um, verse 14 tells us that 120 people were gathered there. Probably not a lot of social distancing going on at that time. But we know that this house wasn't far from the eastern gate because the Mount of Olives is right outside of the east gate. And it said it was only a Sabbath day's journey to the house where they stayed. So that puts it within about half a mile or three quarters of a, or a quarter of a mile. So not very far from that spot. And then in verse 13, we see the list that the 11 disciples were gathered there. And as Paul Twist pointed out last week, I just think it's so fascinating that from this point on, only Peter, John, and James are ever mentioned again in Scripture, in the book of Acts or in any other of the writings that we have in Scripture. We never hear anything about Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, or Judas, the son of James. Here they are, these men that Jesus is going to use to usher in his kingdom. Luke twenty two thirty says that they will sit on the 12 tribes judging Israel in heaven. And right here, most of their names just disappear from history. So I think this tells us who, who's on center stage here. Is it these men? Is it these disciples? No, it's all about Jesus. We learn that Jesus' brothers were there too. But we really know very little about them. History has a few guesses about where they went and what they did, but it's not about them either. It's all about Jesus. Mary was there, but this is the last reference to his mother Mary in all of Scripture. And what do we find that she's doing here? And the last time we read about her, is she receiving prayers? Is she interceding for other people? No, she's worshiping Jesus, her Savior. So it's not about Mary either. It's all about Jesus. And so before the powerful promise comes, these men go back and just wait, as God told them to do. They had the facts. They had their instructions about what they were to go and do. But they had to wait because they still needed the power of the Holy Spirit. I listened to a sermon online from our pastor from 1972. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of his old sermons. It's so fun to hear his voice. Um, He says, I quote from that sermon, You see what this is pointing out to us? This is pointing out to us the absolute hopelessness of doing anything in your flesh. It can't be done. You can't do it. You can make all your little nice plans, and you can run out to do it in your own strength, and it'll just be as empty as a banging bucket in a dry well. It doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't amount to anything if it's done in your own energy. So I'd encourage you to think about that. What aspects of your life, of your spiritual life, are you trying to just do by your own hard work and your own energy? Are you remembering to go to the Spirit for help, for comfort, for guidance, for wisdom, for strength? Maybe in your marriage or in your parenting, in evangelism or teaching Sunday school or helping out with music. Remember that on your own, you are nothing and you have nothing to offer. You need to wait on the Lord and depend on the Holy Spirit every day for the spiritual things that you need. And how do we do that? 
Well, Colossians 3.16 tells us that we need to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. You were given the Holy Spirit at salvation, and that Holy Spirit can never be taken away from you. But to be filled with the Spirit is to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. The more saturated you are with the word of God, the more filled you are with the mind of Christ. Your thinking is going to be like Christ would think. And the spirit of Christ is going to control you and lead you. It's not by your own efforts that anything happens spiritually. People aren't saved because of you. They're only saved because of the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is built by the Holy Spirit. And just like the apostles, you need this power from on high to do the work of the ministry, whether that is to your own children at home, to your grandchildren, as a Sunday school teacher, any opportunity you have to talk to a neighbor or a friend about the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the only one who can do the work. But this account also tells us that the disciples weren't exactly just sitting around waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. It also tells us that they prayed with faithfulness. Uh, They responded with persistent watchfulness for these things that the Messiah was going to bring about. Verse 14 says, These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they responded in persistent watchfulness. It tells us that they shared fellowship with one mind. One mind means that they were in unity. They were in complete agreement with one another. And don't you long for that? Don't you long for that unity? And just love the times when you're sitting with your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're talking about the things that you share in common, the things that never change, like the truth of the gospel, the hope of your salvation, the hope that we have in heaven. But pride often gets in our way, doesn't it? And we fight and we quarrel about things that really don't matter, that really aren't important. But we can learn a lesson from this, from what happened here, because all that these disciples could think about was Jesus' promise to them of the Holy Spirit and his hope, the anticipation that they gave him of his return one day. They were totally united, and with perseverance and with determination, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They had a laser focus on what their mission was, and they were so intent on equipping themselves to be ready to carry out that purpose. We can learn a lot from the fact that they used this time to pray. They weren't just, they didn't just get busy and get right to, okay, what are we going to do? Who's going to go where? What are we going to say? They knew that they needed to just depend on the Holy Spirit. They knew they needed to depend on God for everything that they were going to need. The promises given of the power that was going to come didn't negate their need to pray. And the prayer focus on your lesson this week, you were asked to think about this, to consider how you can be praying while you wait for God's promises to be fulfilled. I hope you took some time to do that and that maybe with your groups you can share some of those encouraging promises that you meditated on this week. But the disciples didn't just pray either. The next section tells us that they took informed action. They took informed action to accomplish a big task, and that was the choosing of the disciple who was going to replace Judas. And we read about that in the rest of the chapter, verses 15 and following. Let's just read verses 15 to 17 now. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share In this ministry. 
<clears throat> so this passage doesn't really tell us who these 120 people were that were gathered for this event of the choosing of this new disciple. Maybe Nicodemus was there. Maybe Joseph of Arimathea, who lent his grave to Jesus. Maybe the disciples that had been with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Probably Mary and Martha and Lazarus would have been there. And maybe others that Jesus had healed who had come to faith in him. It's interesting that under uh, Jewish law, we know that 120 people was what was needed to form a town council. So in essence, this group of Christians is here together forming a new community, sort of like a community church, you could say. I was studying through this passage when um, the first group of new members a few weeks ago was called up on stage, and I thought it was such a good visual because there were, I think there were 122 people. So it was about that size of a group that's gathered together, this first church of Christ. So exciting. And last week, another hundred people were added to our church. And just amazing to see how God is continuing to work this way by adding people one by one to our number, those who know and trust Christ for salvation. And we have the amazing promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And yet that doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy and go really smoothly and well. We know that. The church is never free from some kind of controversy or something happening. The gates of hell will not prevail, but they will try. And here, sadly, Peter stands up and says in verse 16 that the scripture had to be fulfilled. Remember, Paul Twist told us to look out for that little phrase. The scripture had to be fulfilled. That's an indication that a prophecy from the Old Testament is taking place. And Judas, one of the 12 chosen disciples who had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry, acted as a guide and as a helper to those who arrested and murdered Jesus. There had been a traitor in their midst. And then in verse 18, Luke steps into the narrative to, with a little parenthetical aside, to tell his readers the story of what happened to Judas. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. So we know from putting the different gospel accounts together that Judas committed suicide in this field that was purchased with the money he had received for his treachery. He took the money at first, but then he gave it back. And the priests were actually the ones who purchased this field with the money because they didn't want to touch that money. Um, we know that Judas committed suicide and then he fell headlong and was split open there. And everybody knew about this field. Uh, so Luke tells us here. And then he translates the word for his Gentile readers from Aramaic to the field of blood. And in verse 20, then the account goes back to Peter's address to the crowd and he cites the specific prophecies from Psalms that were about Judas, that were about this traitor. Um, he says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection." There's that thing again that they're supposed to be witnesses of, is the resurrection of Christ. So Peter saw that Psalm 55, 69, and 109 all showed that this treachery was not a surprise to God. They showed that the Messiah's enemy would be removed 
from his position of authority and that his responsibilities would be given to someone else. And Peter used these scriptures to prove to his hearers that all of these events and the actions that were now taking place were what God had planned all along. And the, the use of these psalms by Luke also tells us something else, that the disciples during this 10-day period were being led by the scriptures as Jesus had taught them. Remember it said that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures? And they understood now that these passages had a direct application to their very situation. And so they prepared to select this new apostle to take the place of Judas. So let's finish reading verses 23 to 26. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So Joseph and Matthias, because they fit the qualifications given in the previous verses that they had been with Jesus since his baptism by John all the way until his resurrection, um, these two were the two men that fit those qualifications. But we read that the choice between these two men <clears throat> was made through prayer to God and by the drawing of lots. So the modern day equivalent of drawing lots would be like when you say to someone, oh, pick a number between one and 10 and whoever's closest gets to go or whatever. Um, or it could be like flipping a coin. I used to do that with my kids when they were little. If there was a decision that um, they disagreed on, like what movie to watch, for example, something not really important, it seemed like a fair way to decide between the two of them. Okay, whoever gets closest to this number gets to choose this time. But in the Old Testament, the drawing of lots was not something done just kind of haphazardly like that. It was done with a lot of prayer and about very specific things. <clears throat> In this case, these two men were carefully selected following those requirements that they be men who had been with the disciples and witnessed the resurrection. And then the disciples prayed to the Lord, acknowledging him as the one who knows all hearts. And this, um, the words used in the Hebrew here show us that, or the Greek show that the hymn that they were praying to was the Lord Jesus himself. So Jesus is the one from heaven choosing who this new apostle would be, just as he had chosen the rest of them. So remember Rodney's lesson from a couple weeks ago. Uh, the use of lots is never repeated again in the New Testament, and it's never commanded for the church to use lots in any way, shape, or form to choose anyone or anything. So we can assume from that, that the drawing of lots is not something that's prescribed for the church. The drawing of lots just describes for us how Matthias was chosen in this strange period of time before the Holy Spirit had come to the church. So Peter, in this section, he told his listeners that Judas had turned aside to go to his own place, forfeiting his position as an apostle. His defection is what necessitated his replacement. You may have heard the claims of some people today that they are apostles, that somehow the office of apostle has passed on to them. Well, we don't read of that anywhere else in scripture. We, we see here Matthias replacing Judas, and then Paul calls himself an apostle because he saw the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. There are no other examples of apostleship passing to anyone else or apostles being added. 
for example, when James died, we'll study about that in Acts chapter 12. James is martyred for his faith, and there's no move made to replace James as an apostle. He was faithful until death, and he will be reigning on one of those 12 thrones in heaven. The apostles' positions were not carried on past their deaths. No one replaced them when they died, only Judas, because he forfeited his position as an apostle. And the lesson that we can learn from this informed action that the disciples took is simple. We just need to pay attention to God's word, to study it, to know what it says, and then to put it into practice in our lives. In your daily devotions, as you come across a passage that gives you a command or an exhortation, an encouragement, think about it and decide how it is that the Lord would have you to live that out in your life, how your life needs to change as a result of what you're reading in God's word. So we saw today in this monumental chapter that Jesus prepared the disciples for what was to come, for the power that the Holy Spirit was going to bring in the church age. We also saw that the disciples responded in obedience by waiting for him, by praying and taking action on what his word told them to do. So historically now, we find that the stage is set. The beginning of the next era is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming And the 12 disciples are complete as a team again. They've been commissioned to go and to preach the gospel. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, the 13th and most important member of that team who's going to empower them for the task of taking the gospel to the nations. We also looked at how the preparation that Jesus gave to the disciples also has application to us as he ministers to us through his living and active word as we're still in the last days. We're still in this phase where we're waiting for Christ's return from heaven. How comforting it is to know that we also have his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us as we go out and bear witness of him and seek to live our lives for his glory. So let's pray now to that end. Lord, we thank you for the recording of this history that we have in your word, for what it teaches us, for the hope that it gives us, for the courage that it inspires us with as we know that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to obey your word, to preach the gospel, to live our lives for your glory. We thank you that you can take simple people, average people like us, and that you can use us for your glory in so many diverse and amazing ways. I pray for each of the people here, Lord, that we would be faithful to read your word every day, to do the simple task of just spending the time to read it and think about it, that we would pray and consider how our lives need to change uh, to glorify you more completely and more fully. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us. We pray for our small group times now that you would be with us, that you would be guiding us in our study of your word, uh, that you would be unifying us around these amazing truths that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins on the cross, and that he rose again and ascended to heaven where he still reigns with you, Lord. We do know that you're coming back again, and we just ask that you would come quickly, and that you would prepare each of us to be ready for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.